Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 11th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shively. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have you all on. Good to have you all back after the Labor Day break. Um, We're excited to get back after things. And then also... Uh, looking forward to our guest, somebody new on the Kudzu Vine, uh, coming in for the first time, Ms. Sherry Jacobus, and she is going to um, talk to us kind of, uh, one, about the elections in 2022, but also kind of how the Republican Party has changed in recent years. She's now a political independent who had been a very um, you know solid Republican consultant in the past, and like so many Republican consultants that um, probably have a little more um, sanity has not been happy with some of the ways the Republican Party has um, veered in recent cycles. And so we'll talk to her in about 20 minutes. Until then, we're going to discuss some different issues. And we're going to start off with, um, obviously, some sad news that's not necessarily American political news, but it's definitely a world affair. And that was uh, the passing of the Queen of England, who I guess is the longest reigning monarch in English history. I'm not sure about the world, but definitely in English history. Um, Catherine, what are your um, thoughts on her life and passing? And, and maybe you can fill more details about her longevity. Well, yeah, she's the longest serving monarch. I don't know if it's in history or just in uh, the British monarchy. I haven't gotten, I haven't paid that close attention. But I mean, I think it's you know, the end of a long era, and um, she, while we might not all agree on the place of monarchy in the modern world, I think that um, she certainly stepped into that role as a very young woman and served very, uh, very service-oriented and uh, served throughout a lot of historical events and, uh, you know, tragedies and, uh, you know, props to her for a long life of service. It'll be interesting to see how the monarchy modernizes with the new, with King Charles and then the upcoming, you know, the the next generation of uh, leadership. So, uh, you know, I, w- she lived a great life and served her country very well for the most part. Tim? Hmm. Well, uh, you know, she she was 96 and this, this was inevitable. Uh, and, and even though it was inevitable, it, it, it still seemed to stun everyone. Not not only in that nation, but uh, kind of around the world. 
90% of the British people had only known her as their monarch in their lifetime. Uh, so she she transcends generations. Um, uh, she, she was well-liked personally in most of the world. Uh, and the British people, obviously, as we've seen on TV in recent days, something we already suspected, they absolutely adored her. Um, I, I, I think that King Charles III is, is viewed somewhat differently. Uh, he, he, he's he got some things to prove to some folks. There's been, you know, some things that have happened in his personal life, of course, especially with Princess Diana that didn't sit well with folks. But uh, now, now uh, he has some awfully, awfully, awfully big shoes to fill. If you look at British history for the last couple of hundred years, there have been some very strong women who have occupied positions of power. I mean, uh, Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria, Margaret Thatcher, those were uh, people of, of, of great stature. And now we face a situation where uh, there will not be a, a, a female monarch uh, in, in England for uh, probably the next three generations or so. So uh, one question that will be addressed now that was not addressed because of her personal popularity, I think, was what is the future now of the monarchy in, in, in England? That, that might be something they'll be talking about in co- uh, coming days after this period of mourning. I, I wanted to mention one cartoon uh, that I saw and it was such a poignant thing, and it showed one of uh, a little Yorkie with its leash. I saw that. And, and, and the leash was laying straight out on the ground, and the little dog was turning around with a perplexed and sad look and looking behind it because nobody was there with it. And uh, with that, David, I will uh, give it back to you. Yeah, and I, I have nothing but positive and sympathetic thoughts for, you know, Elizabeth's family and her as a person and a mother and a grandmother and a wife and an aunt and uncle and all those things. I mean, this is a passing of a person, and no matter what goes on, I always try to feel that way first. Now, as far as Catherine, you touched on something, and Tim, I think you did too, the future of the monarchy. I mean, is this something in 2022 should, that should exist anywhere in the world? And in Britain, um, in a country that's so forward-thinking in so many other ways, that is something they'll have to look at. Um, I think, actually, um, uh, Prince Harry is actually kind of looking that way. He's already seeing that, you know, conversation. But that's probably for another time since this this is this period of time, which is in the, um, you know, funeral area. And I know it's apparently a 10-day period. Um I saw on too long didn't read news uh, at last. So um, it'll be a transition, and Britain will have to figure it out. And one thing I do think is kind of perplexing, is maybe the word, is uh, Liz Truss took over the prime ministership within the week that this passing happened, and it completely overshadows the person that actually has political power now in Britain. And that shows you how the monarchy is so – important in the nation's psyche and attention 
that it overshadows the um, new leader of a country. We just don't have that frame of reference in America because the president is the highest executive office. There's no other thing that compares to that. Um, so it's just a interesting juxtaposition. Um, but, you know, if, there, if there's more things that come out of this in future weeks, we'll discuss it. Not sure it will. And, of course, we're a, essentially a political show about American politics, and sometimes international politics impacts that. Um, but now let's move on to another topic that's vastly different and one we've really never discussed And I think, the um, years that the Cozy Vine has been on the, sh- uh, on the air, you know, 15 some odd years, and that is Utah politics. Um, it's a state that is so Republican, it just – it's really never in play. And, um, but then this past week, and I think we actually had seen some polls that kind of put it a little bit on the radar, but a new poll came out. Now, albeit it was an internal poll by Evan McMullen, a person who um, had been a Republican in the past, was very disaffected by um, Donald Trump, and now – a poll came out showing him a point down. I don't know if the Democratic opposition completely stepped down or it's so nominal that most Democrats in the state are supporting the independent candidacy of Evan McMullen. In a Republican state like Utah, Mike Lee, it seems like the race shouldn't even be in play. Uh, Tim, what do you make of these poll numbers? Yeah, and, and let, let me uh... – Remind you one thing: the only discussion we've ever had of Utah politics, not 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 counting Mitt Romney's run for the presidency, was Mia Love when when she was elected to Congress out there. That made pretty big news, and and that's it for Utah. Uh, I, I I turn as far as this Senate race to uh, some well-known sources. Five thirty-eight. Compilation polling has Lee up 46.2 to McMullen's 38.1. The Cook Political Report did have it safe Republican. It is now likely Republican, somewhat closer. And Race to the White House, another popular source to look for compilation polling, has uh, has it a bit closer with Lee at 45.9 and McMullen at 39.8. Now, that being said, that don't sound that close to a lot of people, and it wouldn't be in a state, say, like this one. But this is Utah, and this is the most competitive race in Utah in a very long time. Mike Lee won his two previous elections in Utah by 29 points and uh, six years ago by 41 points. This oh is shaping up to be an eight to 10-point race all day long, and that's kind of that's kind of surprising. And the only thing I can think of is the voters are perceiving that Mike Lee is just a wee bit too chummy with a fellow by the name of Donald Trump. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah, I would say that um, I, I would tend to agree with that because I think the um, – it's a very conservative state, and I, I imagine they don't take too kindly to a lot of the behavior of Trump, and they overlooked it 
perhaps in the past, but as we're learning more and more about the documents and about some of the people that surrounded him and the January 6th um, uh, hearings, I can imagine that that would be, those are all things that would uh, persuade Utah voters to take a second look at some other can- at another candidate aside from the you know the popular Republican so it's going to be an interesting night in uh, November yeah if we're looking at Utah yeah. it is <laughs> yeah. yeah and this is a race that I don't think we expect to have on the radar um, and it really is I don't think it's on the radar because of the reason a lot of other states are. It's not on there because the way Pennsylvania is, the way Wisconsin is, the way Ohio may be. And that's I'm talking now about Republican defending seats, not necessarily Arizona and Georgia, um, Nevada, states that are Democratic defense. I mean, this is just a different kind of state. And I think you tapped into a little bit of it. Mike Lee is, is too chummy with Donald Trump. He's also apparently in the Senate best friends with Ted Cruz might even be his own <laughs> friend. I don't know. Um, and, and so I think a lot of this is about Mike Lee. I don't think it's about some of the other things going on in America. It's not, oh, gas prices are higher, inflation's high. It's probably not related to the Dobbs decision. might not be related to, to what the Supreme Court said about other decisions for a lot of voters. There may be voters that are upset about that in Utah, but there are probably voters that vote for Democrats a lot anyway. Um, and so, therefore, this is a lot about referendum on Mike Lee and his personality and the way he conducts himself. And it's definitely, even if he wins but wins close, it's a thumbs down on that. Um, and so I don't even know that it will make Mike Lee change. Because if I'm not mistaken, didn't he actually kind of move out a more um, – you know, not as controversial Republican. It wasn't Orrin Hatch, but it was one of their other senators. Didn't Mike Lee primary him and kind of move him out in the uh, convention, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, the, yeah, I believe yeah. they have conventions out there, and and that's how he first uh, came to prominence uh, during the Tea yeah. Party era. Uh, and he yeah. was a favorite of the Tea Party, and and that happened in 2010. Of course he was. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if you look at Utah, I mean, Orrin Hatch, uh, their governor, Spencer Cox, their other senator, Mitt Romney, all very conservative Republicans. I mean, they're they're true Republicans. You know, I'm sure some of the hardcores may start calling them rhinos or whatever they like to do, but they are true Republicans. They're just not controversial they're more good government Republicans, like here's the rule book. We're going to play by the rule book. Um, if something is going to be done, we are going to try to do it very efficiently, but we are going to do it. We're not going to try to change the rules up and not execute that. And so I think a lot of Utah voters are more like Spencer Cox and Mitt Romney and Orrin Hatch um, and not like Mike Lee, and they really don't know uh, what to do with it. Bennett. Tim? It was Bob Bennett, wasn't it? Bob Bennett. Bob that Bennett, right? yeah. That's as, as who he beat, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, and he, he moved him out through the convention process. Yeah. Um, and, and there could be some people that may remember Bob Bennett, and, you know, um, 
like him because of that, uh, or dislike uh, dislike um, Mike Lee because of the way that all went down. So it's going to be an interesting race to follow. Now, here's the thing. Let's say Evan McMullen wins. I don't really think he's somebody that caucuses with the hardcore Republicans, obviously. He's not going to be Ted Cruz's new best friend, but I don't necessarily know that he caucuses with the Democrats. Um, Tim, if he were to get to um, the Senate, what do you think he would do to conduct himself? Well, man, I, he's he's pretty conservative himself. He's very he's from a very conservative state. I, I think he would probably still um, caucus with, with with the Republicans, but uh, he would be more of um, he'd probably be more of a Mitt Romney type, wouldn't you think? Than that he certainly would be a, a Mike Lee. Type who clearly he he disdains his politics. He he really does, and, and has said so. But Evan McMullen himself is 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 pretty conservative. I mean, you know, the 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 Democrats in Utah are, are not exactly flaming liberals. Uh, uh, they would be like a lot more like some of the moderate Democrats from you know this state and some others in the South. Uh, so I, I would say he'd caucus with the Republicans. I'd be stunned if he did anything else. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Catherine, what's your take on him? Yeah, I agree with Jim. I think he'll uh, caucus with the Republicans, but he might be a, vo- a, a, a more of a voice of reason, and he might be willing to, uh, you know, work across the aisle mm-hmm. on certain yeah. certain issues that um, are important to him and to his constituents so that's something that is certainly possible i would say yeah yeah i mean i think on a lot of the democracy issues we're facing he would be a good voice just like mitt romney is um yeah he's not gonna um just you know say you can just put in fake electors and crazy things like that um i think on water issues which are big for utah he might be kind of more of a voice for reason understanding that there's X amount of water and there's X amount of need or Y amount of needs, and you have to come up with a plan, um, those kind of issues. Another one I think will be interesting with him and Mitt Romney both is I wonder if they're anywhere near as hardliner on a lot of immigration issues as a lot of Republicans and the Republicans. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so, David. I think both of those yeah. men are classic. Rock rib fiscal conservatives, you know the let let's keep spending close to the vest, except where it comes to our favorite things like national defense and that sort of thing and uh you know no, let let let's don't let's don't ever call anything a tax increase even if we have one that they, they would they would be along those lines chamber of commerce type republicans yeah absolutely you yeah. I just say because I think you know immigration is an issue where a lot of people talk about you know build walls as high as you can and other people may say hey just let everybody in but a real plan takes everybody sitting together and coming up with a number of people that you want in and that's probably higher than a lot of hardcore Republicans are more comfortable with but what the country might actually need to. Um, Keep up with labor demands, and if if you have another voice that can actually discuss things like that from a Republican side or a conservative side of the aisle, that's not a bad thing. 
because um, I don't think we're going to get, um, you know, a, a real progressive senator out of Utah anyway. So it's um, well, a realistic well, well, let me let, let, let me ask you let me ask you a question then. If Mike Lee barely survives, do you, do you think he gets the message? I don't think he would get the message. I think there's a good number of folks up there that they just turn the message off. I think Ted Cruz is another one of them. They're just going to believe what they believe because they think that is the right way. They're not popularist. Um, they believe theirs is the right way. Catherine? Mm-hmm. Same question? Yeah, I, I, I don't think uh... – I don't think the leopard changes his spots that easily. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we are going to have another Utah political question on the other side of our guest, but we're so excited to bring on to the Kudzu Vine for the first time, Miss Cherry Jacobus. Welcome, Miss Jacobus. Thank you. All right. Good to have you on. Well, Ms. Jacobus, I, you know, I put up an extensive bio for your website, and I talked about Uh-oh. how you had been a Republican, and now you're in an independent. And so, but I want you to tell more about your story and tell us about your bio and your political history. Well, I've been around a long time, so my bio is extensive and my political history is extensive, and I don't want to bore people. But the, you know, the, the short the short story of this is I uh, started working on Capitol Hill, went to Washington D.C. during the Reagan administration, and um, you know, I was a good Republican. I was a moderate and rose through the ranks. And um, all the people we see now in the news and hear about in the news are people I worked with and have known. And uh, then I left and went to New York. Uh, Trump wanted me to work for him. I uh, was tricked into a lunch. I had a friend who was going to be working on his super PAC who said, uh, uh, you know, we're looking for a communications director. And, you know, you don't say no right away. I said, well, let's, let's have lunch and talk about it because I was going to, of course, you know. And he brought along a guy named Corey Lewandowski who I'd never heard of before, and they worked on me a little bit. Uh, Corey was a jerk, and uh, I was like, yeah, not interested. So I was on TV a lot, long-time pundit, uh, Republican strategist on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and I took on Trump. I criticized him. And when uh, Washington Post report came out that said he had a super PAC and was not self-funding, he and Corey Lewandowski lied, and they were threatening to sue the paper. So I came forward and said they had a super PAC. He told me all about it, blah, blah, blah. I was immediately banned by Fox. The catfishing of me began where Trump hired people to pretend to be big Republican donors, you know, looking to hire me to help defeat Trump, blah, blah, blah. And he eventually got his buddy Jeff Zucker at CNN to ban me. And um, I'm giving a very short story here. But I was I was uh, yeah, hacked and catfished and, you know, was trying to sue him for defamation. And the guy ends up winning. And so it was just, you know, a long, a long, long story. But I left the party the day after they nominated Trump. A lot of my former friends and colleagues were like, you know, he's not going to win the general. We'll all come back together. The party will unite. And I thought, you know what? No, I knew something bad was going to happen. I uh, also didn't want to work with people who would even pretend to support him for a while. So I left. And I have been a staunch anti-Trump activist ever since. 
So that's yes. that's, uh, well, I want that's the, actually the short, that's uh, the short version. The, you, but, yes, I've run Republican races. I've been a Republican uh, spokesperson at the RNC, you know, all in. I was on television several thousand times as a Republican strategist. But, you know, I, I just couldn't do it. And a lot of people could. They sold their souls, and I couldn't. So I let the chips fall where they may, and it's been rough. But, uh, you know, got to do it, right? And you're not alone because there's a lot of people just like you that were good Republicans and Republican operatives that are no longer with the party because of uh, Donald Trump. But let me kind of – I see two things going on there with Donald Trump. I see one is his personality traits like narcissism and and the hunger for power, which is within him, which has nothing to do with the Republican Party and conservatism. But I do see another piece that – the conservative or Republican base latched onto him in some of his ideals, and I think we touched on immigration. And so how do you see that dynamic of Donald Trump's personality and then the base looking – or at least a portion of it – looking for someone like Donald Trump? Well, you know, he knew how to go in and, and drill down and, and find those you know, the, the, the racism and the white supremacism and all the grievances, and he knew how to kind of pick that scab. Uh, some of the people in the fringes, and he had help, as we now know, from Vladimir Putin. Uh, he also had the media with him because, you know, the establishment Washington, in D, you know, establishment Republicans in Washington did not support Trump in the primary. And I think that they were caught flat-footed by just how, vociferously he was working his media uh, exec contacts in New York. Jeff Zucker, who ran CNN up until very recently, uh, was at NBC and greenlit The Apprentice for Trump, and and it made his career, and it made Trump's career, and Trump supposedly helped him get the CNN job. And Jeff Zucker would brag that he, um, you know, he was Trump's personal booker at CNN. And what I saw after being in the business for a long time, I saw – a 15-way primary, and uh, Fox News and then even CNN doing everything they could to prop this guy up. So the media really helped. Between media and Putin, you know, they had it. So Washington, uh, establishment Republicans, again, they were not for Trump. I think they were shocked. Um, But they fell in line after he was the nominee because they wanted to keep their positions as a cog in the wheel and keep their lobbying gigs, and keep their uh, TV contracts, and keep their their seat, and keep their their job, and continue to go to the Loudoun County Republican Women's Club annual your monthly luncheons. So they all fell in line, thinking no harm would be done. And as we know, great harm was done. So there was the personality was one thing, but I experienced the criminality personally uh, myself. And so what we're seeing now doesn't really surprise me. What happened to me was a sort of a microcosm of then what would happen to the entire country. But remember, we knew about his criminality very early on, and he kept getting away with it and getting away with it and getting away with it. Um, and is still getting away with it. So it was, um, yeah. was it something there in the Republican Party? On the fringes, yes, but he had a lot of help picking that scab. Yes, and you mentioned, um, you know, cable news, and I tell my students I teach at the cons level political science that, you know, the cable news networks, they're there first and foremost to serve ratings and get ratings more so than serve American democracy. And so I I think that's kind of what um, 
in many ways got created there through the 2016 campaign. I want to ask about one more question before I pass it to Catherine and Tim, and that would be in I listened to Tim Miller's book, who much like yourself has the same journey, worked for Jeb Bush, worked for Republicans, and then got very disillusioned by Donald Trump and left the party. And I don't know how much you're familiar with his work, but he was on the committee to write what's affectionately known as the 2012 GOP autopsy. And that autopsy report was things like make party more inclusive, have more of a real plan on immigration, and a decent chunk, in particular the Trumpist base, rejected the thesis of that autopsy. Let's just say that, you know, the GOP doesn't uh, reject that autopsy. How is um, the Republican Party and American politics different? Well, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't know. If I really fully understand what you're asking. The autopsy. Some of that was PR. You know, I'm just going to say that outright. Um, a true op- autopsy would have uh, exposed something probably a little bit deeper, I'm guessing. Um, my experience in the party was when I first uh, started working, you know, I was working for Bob Michael, a House Republican leader. He was very moderate. He could work with Tip O'Neill, and Tip O'Neill could work with Ronald Reagan. And I worked for other moderates. And then I also was a part of the contract with America when Newt was speaker, and I saw something change, and what shocked me and what felt different to me was that um, the evangelical far-right base had a real seat at the table that I did not feel was appropriate. And we knew that they were on the fringes of the party and, they were, and, and, and maybe part of, the, of a coalition, I guess. But there was um, a real uncomfortable uh, sort of bending to them that time I didn't quite understand and wasn't comfortable with. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so you're saying it kind of predated um, even 2012 and 2016, which well, I, I could it, see it, that. It did, uh, but it, yeah, it, it was there, but, but it, was, it was certainly manageable. And Democrats have um, some parts of their coalition that, you know, if they, if they get too, too many seats at the table, it, it's, it's, it doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, it, it was that, but we also had a lot of new people who joined the Republican Party just for Trump. We see a lot of these people at the rallies. We, we, we see something different that just wasn't there before. So while a lot of us left the party, uh, there's that other element, and it's not the majority, but it's the one getting the attention, a lot of attention. It's that element um, that I think President Biden was talking about in his Philadelphia speech a couple of weeks ago. Remember, he said, I have worked with Republicans, you know, real Republicans. We may not always agree, but we can work together, traditional Republicans. And they are not this. Where He was going after the, the MAGA people who are anti, they're insurrectionists, they're anti-democracy, they are election deniers, they're violent and they're radical. And that is not, and he was appealing to that part of the Republican Party that increasingly is uncomfortable with that, that there's no denying it, even if Fox tries to you know, sugarcoat it or hide it completely uh, for people who only watch Fox. So President Biden was appealing to those Republicans, and he was basically saying, if you want to save your country, you don't have to become a Democrat, but I'm going to, give, I'm show, I'm going to point you to the exit ramp so that you can do what needs to be done in the midterms to save America. 
And I've had this discussion and kind of had to chastise some Democrats who they want they do they want to attack anybody who's ever been a Republican going back to the Reagan years, which was how many decades ago. And and they want penance and and you know that's not how you win elections. You win elections in the margins. Close elections are won or lost or lost in the margins. And Democrats need just enough Republicans, just enough, not all of them, who are listening to President Biden, who are seeing what's happening with the criminality with Trump and the ridiculousness now of ultra-mega. And they're saying, you know, this is a bridge too far. I may not want to register as a Democrat. I may still want to be a Republican someday. But right now, I have to do, we have to save America. I'm going to hold my nose and vote blue. I'm going to do the right thing and put country first. And so... If just enough um, of these Republicans, sane Republicans, or you know, supposedly sane Republicans, um, are, are turned off enough, uh, it helps Democrats. So I, I tell Democrats, stop yelling at people for being Republicans their whole lives because that's not how you're going to win the midterms. Yes. Engaging discussion so far, and I'm going to pass it over to um, Catherine. who will have more questions, and then to Tim. So um, let Catherine go ahead. All righty. Thanks so much for being on the show tonight. It's great to, Good to be here. Have a it's great to have a um, well-spoken woman on the show. We always like that. Um, I, I'm just wondering if you could, you know, put your, you know, uh, wish glasses on. How would you like to see the Republican Party five years from now? What would be the what would the base look like? What wow, are the values gosh. that would be <coughs> embraced? My feeling, is, my feeling I, is that yeah, my feeling but, is that the party is too far gone. I think they have to um, close up shop, frankly, and then another party can reemerge. Maybe it's the Republican party. Maybe, I mean, right now they shouldn't even call themselves the Republican party. It's the MAGA party. And there needs to be, uh, it, it just needs to be completely cleaned out of this element uh, that led us to this point. So I, I think it's a long time before they can come back. I personally don't believe I could ever vote Republican again in my lifetime. Um, because there's an element that's still there that was a part of the insurrection, that was a part of all of this, all of the lies, all of the treason, all of the disinformation, all of the denial of the obvious, uh, all to maintain power and to help build this cult. So for me, um, I'm done. But for the Republican Party itself, you know, I would like to see uh, Liz Cheney, run against Trump if he were to run, although you know, legally he can't, but if he thinks he's going to try and somehow he escapes um, the arm of the law like he has so far, uh, if she, I would never vote for her in a general election. But if Liz Cheney ran, I think she should. I think she should try and get in every debate because you can't just let him have the stage. And I think she should announce her running mate early, and I think it should be um, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, have a Cheney-Hogan ticket. And that will be um, basically reminding people of everything that Trump is. I don't think they can let him just have a free love fest of a primary. Um, and then, you know, I think once you get these in, these Republican voters, the ones that President Biden was, was speaking to, once you get them to vote against Trump in a primary, it's a lot easier to get them to vote against Trump in a general election. So I 
think you've got to put up that fight, even, of course, uh, a Cheney Hogan ticket would lose. But I think that they could do a lot of good for the country. That's a really interesting um a really interesting ticket. I I I could um imagine that. Um It'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean I wouldn't vote for him, but you know, that's <laughs> I only voted for a Republican once in my life and I voted a lot. Um do you think that the I know that the Dobbs the Dobbs decision the Dobbs decision uh, is not everything, but do you think that's going to have an impact on uh, some of these moderate Republican voters, especially suburban women? Do you think that is going to have an impact on the midterms, or are we going to be so far away from that by then that it's going to be a little bit less of an issue? Well, uh, a couple of things, a number of things on that point. I, I did see some daily tracking that shows that it's starting to wane as a top issue. It's still important, um, but it is it is starting to fade. Uh, so I hope that uh, uh, that uh, Democrats and others can re-up that, make it a focus again. We saw what happened in Kansas where, you know, that's a really conservative state. And during the primary, they also had a, the ballot initiative on abortion there. And you had just a cavalcade of new voters signing up as independents to voting. They couldn't vote in the primaries, but they could vote for that ballot initiative. Yeah, and that that was uh, incredible. And we saw what happened in um, the New York uh, congressional uh, special election, too. It was a surprise. So I do know that it's harder. I've been trying to find out uh, if if pollsters are able to incorporate these new voters, new registrants since June 24th when the Dodd decision dropped if they're able to factor them in in their polling or are they too new? Uh, Because that could really be a wild card. Now, I do know that there is a gender gap in terms of new voter registration, and in Pennsylvania it's particularly large. I'll use this as an example. Women are registering to vote uh, 12% higher rate than men in Pennsylvania. And of all of the new uh, voters, registering in Pennsylvania since June 24th, the Dodd decision, Democrats outnumber Republicans four to one. There's four Democrats registering mm-hmm. to every one Republican. So that could be yeah, still the wild card. It's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I think, but again, um, I don't know. Gonna, but you're right. We're going to have to keep those, that issue at the top of the page. And right, I'm, and I do think that a lot of Republican women, you asked about uh, suburban Republican women, I think a lot of Republicans thought that this was settled law, and so those especially running for office or who didn't have anything at stake, it was very easy to take the so-called pro-life position because you, you, you thought, eh, nothing's ever going to happen, and then reality kicks in, and they realize how draconian um, some of the laws are that are being passed and enforced around the country, and it's frightening. So a lot of people who you know, it was more politically or socially acceptable for them to claim to be pro-life, um, now have, um, a, a not, you know, anti-choice, now have a very different view of things now that uh, reality has shown up at their front door. Well, and also I think just the idea of a right being taken away is very dramatic, yeah. right? I mean, I think that no, ma- no matter what the right, to have one that's been, you know, law for 50 years to be taken away is very uh, disconcerting. What else could they take away, right? 
Um, I had one other question, and it just slipped my mind. <laughs> oh, because I keep it. talking. I have so oh, much I know. to say. <laughs> I know. The, the other um, the other thing that I that I wonder about. You mentioned about whether or not the pollsters can um, catch those newly registered voters. I've been wondering about with that with with all the polls, because we you know in Georgia we have a lot of new newly registered voters, and we're seeing these um, polls on the Senate race, and I'm just I, I'm I'm not putting a lot of confidence in them because I know that we have a lot more Democrats that have registered, at least that's the way we the reporting that we're getting, but those numbers are still really tight between Warnock and Walker. So I'm I'm a little curious about how they're how the pollsters are handling all these new voters as well. So well, yes, I'm sure I, we'll I've have been to trying see. to find out. It, it's possible that they haven't been able to factor them in, and then maybe now they have been able to, or or they found a way to kind of weight these in 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 their their polling. Um, but I haven't been able to get an answer on that yet, and I don't know if that's because they haven't seen my questions or. They don't want to admit, you know, it's possible that there's, you know, some professional pride there and maybe some panic if they don't want to admit that they really don't have a handle on this. Yeah, that could be. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass that over to Tim for some more questions. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good evening, and thank you for being with us tonight. Um, I read uh, that riveting account of the step-by-step stuff that that happened to you um, with these attacks. And Ukraine kept coming up. Um, in your assessment, were, were a lot of these personal attacks uh, leveled against you for the purpose of maybe undercutting support for Ukraine in among Republicans in, in the war against Russia? Well, there were a number of reasons why I was attacked. I had a big platform. I was a pretty good spokesperson against Trump uh, and uh-huh. the people who were supporting him. Uh, and I knew about the super PAC. I knew stuff. And uh-huh. so uh, he had to silence me, and he successfully did that. And he also put pressure on people who previously had been friends and allies of mine and made it clear that um, they were expected to go up against me. And Rush Limbaugh was included in that group because he didn't want to. And so he was caught mm-hmm. in the crosshairs, and he was ordered to do it. And um, he kind of held off for a while, and then he did attack me. Uh, with regard to the Ukraine aspect, when my uh, emails were hacked, uh, after uh-huh. uh, Politico was working on a big story on the catfishing uh-huh. of me, and uh, – during this process is when I was hacked. It was they hadn't been published yet, but it was during the day and a half when he when they were calling around to the Trump people, basically saying this piece is coming out. Got any comment? I mean, it was basically showing that they had done this, and I was hacked. There was an FBI investigation, and part of that investigation was when J.D. Gordon, who had been part of the national security team on the Trump campaign, and worked uh, for Jeff Sessions there. Uh, he had uh, he was trying to get I wrote about his role at the RNC convention where he the only piece uh, of the RNC platform that the Trump campaign got involved in was that Ukraine piece 
about uh-huh. military um, aid to help to help Ukraine fight against potential and expected Putin invasion and attack. And J.D. Gordon was the one that was on the phone uh, reportedly you know, to the campaign, getting that language changed to go softer on Putin. And that was a very big deal at the time. And I eventually wrote about it in USA Today, and there was a target on my back. Uh, they took two runs at me at USA Today, and the first time they failed. Uh, and mm-hmm. this was, he was trying, when I wrote about his role, he was calling the editor, who was his pal, and said, Shuri Jacobus, uh, uh, her PR firm, she works for Ukraine. She's compromised, and you have to fire her and pull the piece. Well, um, I was accused, and I've never had a foreign client. It wasn't true. Um, however, um, and, and I, I didn't understand why I was being pressured like this, so I knew there was a target on my back. But I immediately called the FBI agents who were investigating the hacking of my email because we now have three data points pointing to Team Trump being the ones who hacked it and having um, my email, my hacked email. J.D. Gordon saying that to them was odd that I worked for Ukraine. Several years before that, um, I had a software client who couldn't afford to pay me. You know, I'm like a country doctor. I, I you know, you can pay me in chickens. <laughs> so he gave me 4.4% of his worthless software company. And he did identification verification, you know, like when you log into your phone, your computer, and, you know, that that sort of thing that we all do. And Mm -hmm. finally, somebody had approached him to say, we want you to join in as a sub-subcontractor for this defense contract to to provide this sort of security for the military for a foreign country. Now, I wasn't allowed to know the country because um, I – you know, I didn't have anything to do. I owned it, but I was a part of the, con- the company, but it meant nothing. Well, over time, because we're getting excited about this, because, like, well, now maybe the company is worth something. You know, it's all on the up and up, and we we're trying to see what we needed to do. And it appeared to be a U.S. contract, but we didn't know. So, you know, we're getting all our ducks in a row. And finally, they wrote me in as, as part of the contract doing PR, and then I could find out that the country was Ukraine. Remember, Putin had hacked the the military the ukraine military computers so we were going to have you know we were going to be helping them if we got the contract um secure Mm -hmm. against that sort of an attack well we didn't get the contract it kind of disappeared as these things often do you know but we were mostly contact you know contacting each other by phone the only way and, and we all had ndas the only way anybody would ever know that I had anything to do with Ukraine ever, even potentially, was if they had my hacked emails. So the FBI was on it. And so by this time, we knew, yes, we knew exactly who had my hacked emails. And then um, when um, we realized that the Trump people found out, then something odd happened, as happens happened since. And that by this time, Trump was president. Jeff Sessions was his AG. And that... And, of course, J.D. Gordon, all he had to do when FBI came to talk to him, now he knew there was an investigation, pick up the phone, tell Jeff Sessions to kill it. And uh, all Jeff Sessions would have to do is call Southern District of New York, run by Jeffrey Berman, who now has a new book out, and say, kill the investigation. And I know of two other similar investigations that were killed that way. So this was Mm -hmm. my way. Remember I said earlier that what happened to me was sort of a microcosm of what happened to the rest of the country later. All of these Uh investigations about Trump get killed. Trump can't be Uh indicted. Well, you know, I found out early on that in my little corner of the world, my emails get hacked and all of that, and 
it gets once he became president, done, killed. So um, that was the Ukraine piece, yeah. That, yeah. That so that brings explanation. That, 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 <laughs> but that bring that that segues me in into a very relevant question. This all, all of the stuff that has gone on in the last seven years with this man, and so far, Donald Trump has not been held legally accountable for any of it. Why not? You know that's. Um, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? I mean, I thought mm-hmm. for sure when I knew, I knew I was waiting for indictments just on what they, what he did to me because I knew they had them. It was, you know, undeniable. Mm-hmm. They had them. We had three data points. Um, we saw what Bill Barr did with the Mueller report um, and mm-hmm. uh, would not, you know, and, and basically lied about uh, what Mueller found and how we later find that, found out that Robert Mueller's hands were tied. Um, but he did say, you know, a president that, you know he could be pres- he could be indicted once he left office, but I do mm-hmm. know, and what I've heard for years, and when I was living in New York, is that Trump has bought and paid for so many people along the way that something always happens, and I'm and something always happens, whether it's with Alvin Bragg in New York, whether it is with the Mueller investigation, the multiple mm-hmm. th- we see what's happened um, uh, in Florida with Judge Cannon, uh, who, who was, um, con- was installed as a judge in Florida after Trump had lost the election but was still in office. He purposely placed her there because he knew at some point he's going to need his own corrupt Florida judge. So then he, to, to, to go for the, the, the Mar-a-Lago search and the special mm-hmm. master, he goes judge shopping and finds her. So... He has a criminal for so long and obviously has people working with him who know how to do this, um, that he seems to be 10 paces ahead of the rest of us. And he's not a smart man. But when you're much better at this, um, those of us who aren't criminals, we're always surprised by what he does. And if you're familiar with people, if you have friends or family who've been in any kind of law enforcement or security, they, they... they know how to think like a criminal. So if you think like a criminal, if you think what would he do, what's the worst-case scenario? Because when it comes to Donald Trump, let's face it, we've seen all the worst-case scenarios, and it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Um, there's no such thing as a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory when it comes to Donald Trump. He is so, buying people off. He owns them. He knows how to install corrupt people. He knows how to blackmail them. It is as simple and as ugly and horrendous as that. Yeah, so so where it leads me to think is that perhaps the most important issue facing voters on the ballot in November is the future of American democracy itself. Are enough voters paying attention to that, do you believe? I I don't believe they are, and I think the media, um, the few that are still interested in truth and democracy, are, are tiptoeing around things because, you know, as I just said, the, the, everything about Trump sounds like a, a, a wild conspiracy theory. The things that are truth sound so wild, and I don't think that the American people can handle it, and I don't think that at least the cable networks even really – want to go there. And I'll put one thing out there for you that that is scary and 
could very well happen and may happen. If you're thinking like Donald Trump and your goal is to make sure you do not go to prison and that you have these investigations shut down and get rid of Merrick Garland, um, Mm -hmm. here's what you do. If the Republicans take the House majority in the midterms, they can, and I believe will, make Trump Speaker of the House. You do not have to be an elected member of Congress to be Speaker of the House. They can take anybody off the street and make them Speaker. Yes. Um, And this is shocking to people. And uh, Mm -hmm. there's nothing in the Constitution. There are some Democrats that have been trying to change this uh, and make it law that you have to be an elected member of the House of Representatives in order to be the Speaker of the House. But right now you don't have to. And Matt Gates and others are saying we are going to nominate Donald Trump. So they have been talking about this. If Donald Trump is the Speaker of the House, two heartbeats from the presidency, second in line, he's just right behind the vice president. Okay, so they they will impeach uh, Biden and Harris for no reason at all, and it won't. It, and and the Senate won't convict because, as you know, that takes two thirds. So you, but they will stir this up. There is no doubt in my mind that Trump's violent, radical ultra-MAGA QAnon army would make sure that those first two heartbeats are taken care of so that Trump then ascends to the presidency. And then he will immediately, of course, fire Merrick Garland, and every investigation goes away. Hmm. Goodness. And we saw what they tried to do on January 6th. Right. They were going to assassinate Nancy Pelosi, hang Mike Pence, and we do know that the Secret Service um, uh, you know, missed that pipe bomb at the DNC right before then Vice President-elect Kamala Harris uh, was visiting there. And that was a visit that was not public, but the Secret Service obviously knew, and that was a Secret Service from the Trump administration. Um, I can't think of any time that I've ever heard of Secret Service missing a pipe bomb or any kind of a bomb in their advance sweep of a visit mm-hmm. like that, particularly on such a high alert day as January 6th. And with that, I'm going to send it back over to David. David? Yes, uh, Mr. Kobus, so many interesting kind of lines of discussion have been created um, that we might want to have you back on in the future to, you know, delve into these issues and more. But until then, we wanted to give you a final question. We know you're on social media. You have your own website. You're doing other writings. You've had a podcast in the past. Tell our listeners any of the ways they might could read your work or listen to your work or anything else. Uh, great. Thank you for that opportunity. Yes, follow me on Twitter, at uh, Sherry Jacobus, C-H-E-R-I-J-A-C-O-B-U-S. Uh, I also have re-upped my, my podcast. I shut it down for about 15 months. I had cancer last year. Uh, so it is Politics with Sherry Jacobus, and there's a link to that on um, my profile on Twitter. Uh, and I am on uh, Patreon and uh, at this point in time. And my, my, um, my website is sherryjacobus.com. So I try and keep it pretty simple, pretty easy to find me. Yes, and, of course, we put a tweet out. And if people um, can link on there because I tagged you, and you may end up tweeting it out too, and, and folks can um, – you know, get in touch and see more of your writing. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Well, thank you for being on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you, ma'am. Bye. Thank you.
Yes, that was Miss Sherry Jacobus, um, just a, a longtime political consultant that's been involved with so many things, and I really didn't know a lot of the um, ins and outs of um, meeting with Corey Lewandowski and other things, um, but just an, a good encapsulation of people that the Republican Party kind of left them. Um, but with our last five minutes, um, I did want to talk about that other Utah political issue because we're going deep on the Beehive State today. Um, we'll have to talk about the Georgia Senate race, which we have planned on next week. We'll have no time what else. But there is a book coming out um, pretty soon called The Long Alliance, and it's actually about um, the relationship between Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Um, and it's coming out. I'm trying to see the date that uh, Tegan Goddard put on um, Political Wire. Um, it's actually the 13th, so it comes out two days from now, Tuesday, when most books are released. And so uh, there, there was a nugget in there, and I'm sure there's all kind of interesting things. But in 2018, um, Utah Republican senator, Utah, our GOP um, former standard bearer is their nominee in 2012 who ran on a ticket against Joe Biden. He urged Joe Biden to run for president. Um, one, I personally think this is very surprising, but Catherine, in addition to it being surprising, um, when folks start hearing this, Republican <laughs> voters, particularly Utah Republican uh, voters, how are they going to feel about this? Well, as we talked about earlier with Utah Republicans, they don't seem too happy with Donald Trump. So they may look at this as a um, as Mitt Romney's uh, hope to save democracy and respect him for it. Or they may be mad that he encouraged a Democrat to run. Who knows? But uh, I think from that polling that were that the the uh, peak at the Utah races that we looked at, I, I don't think it's going to hurt him. Yeah, Tim. You know, the theory is is that if you know Joe Biden doesn't run or doesn't catch fire in South Carolina and thereafter doesn't get the nomination. Someone like Bernie Sanders, maybe Elizabeth Warren wins the nomination. Some people theorize that they would be a little further to the left, and some of those folks that were more moderate to, um, you know, soft Republican voters that were comfortable voting for Joe Biden wouldn't have voted for a Bernie Sanders, wouldn't have voted for an Elizabeth Warren, and therefore Donald Trump, and the Republicans could have won the presidency again in 2020 if Joe Biden isn't there um how are republicans in utah going to feel about mitt romney possibly unraveling all that i i don't think they're going to be very surprised i know i'm not surprised at all first of all uh biden and romney genuinely like each other i mean they, they've been friends for years even though they've been you know on opposite sides of some voting and then uh opposite sides of the aisle and ran against each other and stuff like that uh i mean biden called romney the night he got elected to congratulate him you know the night he got elected to the senate so so you know it makes sense to me that romney would do this uh 
having run for president himself, he, he would put country above party. He's that type. And don't forget, he, invoted, he voted to impeach Donald Trump twice, uh, and he's the only member of the Senate that did that. You know, why would anyone be surprised? Uh, now, you know, Romney has to run again in 2024. What happens? That remains to be seen. I know that the, the chair of the Utah Republican Party had something cute to say about this, but uh, I believe about the only place they could get Romney would be in one of those conventions because I believe if he went before the voters as the, as the party nominee out there, that, that <laughs> it, it wouldn't be a huge issue. But but watch the conventions. What, you, you saw what happens there to more moderate people. Yeah, I'm not surprised either, but it is an interesting piece of history. One thing that's funny is you talk about people that don't like Joe Biden. I think Donald Trump's on that list, and, of course, some of the sycophants that follow him that really don't know Joe Biden personally. But of all the people that personally know Joe Biden across the aisle, there's really not a long list that doesn't like him. When Mike Pence won the vice presidency, Joe Biden and Jill Biden met with – Mike and Karen Pence, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mike Pence has a good relationship with Joe Biden. I mean, people on a personal level have no problem with him. So I guess Mitt Romney fits in that. Well, uh, exciting show tonight. Uh, Good to get back at it. Um, Miss Sherry Sherry Jacobus, um, glad to have her in, different kind of voice. And next week we have someone returning to the Cozy Vine, Steve Seisinger, but he's going to talk more about that intersection of education issues and politics. And if you hadn't been following the way with teacher shortages and the way teachers have been being treated around the country and then student learning after the pandemic, it's going to be a really interesting conversation to have an expert from the West Coast and the other side of the country talk about education issues with us. Um, being a 29-year, you know, you're a veteran of education, I like to think I know a little bit, too, so I have a different side of the country I'm in. And so we'll kind of start the conversation there. And, Catherine and Tim, you'll sprinkle in uh, other questions about American education. So looking forward to that. Okay. Good night, guys. And Good night, y'all. Been the Cozy Vine. Hi, everybody. We are the of that first revolution with a strong and united